Welcome to the Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast, where we feature unscripted interviews with graduates of the United States Military Academy Class of 1991. The Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast with your host, Jamie Schleck, starts now. Okay. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to the Old Grad Podcast. I'm your host, uh, Jamie Schleck, and we are here uh, this week with our classmate, John Gerald, Company E2. Uh, so, John, welcome. Welcome to the Old Grad Podcast. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. It's good to be here. It's, uh, it's also it's the beginning of Army-Navy week, so this is uh, ordinarily a very festive and great time in the Army community. Indeed. You know, I think it's, uh, I don't know, it's kind of a shame, I guess, right, that we can't all rally in Philly and, and do the thing. I had my hotel reservations made and was going to take some buddies with me from here in North Carolina. And uh, my, my old troop sergeant major's nephew is a plebe this year. So we were going to, man, just make a big time of it. And, um, you know, it kind of sucks that uh, we can't do that. But uh, the game will be no less, um, I hope, an, an exciting one anyway. And also, you know, a unique one too. I mean, both Army and Navy are going to be at West Point for this uh, for this upcoming this upcoming game. The first time since since World War II, I guess, right? Long time since that's ever happened. Yeah, you know, uh, I saw that uh, also, and you know, I heard today uh, from some other classmates that is like in their own bubble like they're not even staying at the academy like they're not living in the barracks or any of that stuff right now I've been told that they're living they're staying in a hotel like and they have been the football team the football team I don't know if that's true uh somebody somebody earlier today told me that they heard that right um I know we're going to talk about totes later tonight but we were talking about some of the details of the funeral up at West Point here in a couple of weeks and about just kind of the some of the restrictions revolve, uh, you know, around that event, and you know it was all about trying to. I guess they're trying to really protect that bubble. They have the cadets in up there, and somebody said to the group that they heard the football team is in its own bubble, and that would, uh, that would make some sense that. because they're traveling and whatnot. But because um, you know they've been they've been on the road. They you know they went out to South Georgia. They've Played, yeah, they've had a pretty good season, actually. But we should acknowledge, I mean, this is ordinarily a very happy time. But for many of us, myself and you included, we are really hurting. We are really hurting. Um, and I hope I'll be able to um, keep my composure tonight as we talk yeah, about yeah. this. Um, you know, a week, a little over a week ago, we lost one of our dear classmates, uh, one of the greatest the greatest of, of 91, uh, Anthony DeToto. And um, I just don't know what to say. I mean, he was uh, an amazing friend and brother and classmate. Um, when we will inevitably end up talking about him a little bit tonight because he's so meaningful to, to you and to me. In fact, he was the one who recommended to me that you'd be a great guest for the Old Grad Podcast. Um, but we don't want to we're not going to talk solely about him and it's not going to be our primary focus area because there's so much other things that are happening this week, right? Obviously we have his funeral on Wednesday. We have the burial um, next, uh, next week. 
there's going to be ample opportunities for us to have these reflections and these discussions about totes, but we don't want to do things kind of out of step with what's going on on the ground there in Houston, right? Right. Yep. No, I think it's a good plan. Yeah, we we're, there's talk of doing like a big Zoom call for those who want to participate. Like, you know, I've got a Zoom line. I've got access to one that can host up to 500 people. And so, you know, we may have something like that, possibly the Friday after his burial. That might be the 18th. That might be the right timing for something like that, where we can all get on there and kind of be there for each other. I've reached out to a number of classmates this week and you know, it's a good time to grip hands for the, the Toto family, but also to look out after each other too. This is this is this is a shocker. This comes out of nowhere, you know. Yeah, you know, I and I've been talking to guys too, just like everybody has, right? Like the 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 texts, the group texts have been flying around ever since we all found out. And you know, I think it's a great uh, opportunity to just, uh, like you said, grip hands. Um, you know, um, you know, so many words just hug each other a little tighter, right? Um, I was on a Zoom call earlier today with just a couple of folks, and, and it, you know, there were guys just expressing expressing their regret to some extent about how they haven't kept in real good touch. And I, I you know, it's just a, I serve, I think it can serve as a reminder, just you know how important uh you know those that are close to you are and, and how it can all be taken away right and with with no notice and so um you know i think we're getting to that point in our lives where yeah i just you know you and i talked previously i, I lost my dad a couple of weeks ago and um you know a week later um right just a couple of days after talking to totes about it lose him um and I, I just think we're at that time in our lives where you know um, some people have already lost their parents, but you know, I'm, I just lost one and we're just kind of at that age, right. Where those kinds of things, if they haven't already happened, they're going to start happening. Right. We're also at that age where, you know, none of us are spring chickens anymore. And, and, and it's a, a, a reminder about taking care of yourself, taking care of each other. Right. And so, um, yeah, I think it's a good opportunity to kind of just not only not only take time to remember him and his in in you know acknowledge his family, but also just kind of tighten things up, right? All all across the board. Yeah, absolutely. You know, make make contact, but like stay connected to people. I mean, that's in some ways the beauty of the phase of life that we're in. You know, we we're 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 in our fifties, we're you know, transitioning out of the army in your case and 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 maybe into other other professional positions and kids are a little older in most cases they're maybe out of the house it gives us this opportunity to kind of like look back and reflect and that's what I think I found so much with talking to so many classmates through this old grad podcast is like you know you, you kind of fast forward through your 30s and 40s like just head down just hitting the grind just just cranking through but now that we're we are where we are we're beginning to look back and say how influential that experience was of not just West Point but the military and how grateful we are and how important it is for us to to reach out and connect with one another and so thank you again john for being part of the old grad podcast i think i initially emailed you a couple months ago and then we just reconnected recently and we got a chance to put together this uh this call for tonight 
Yeah, Jamie, I really appreciate you asking me. And, and um, you know, I've listened to a few of these in the past and I'm always amazed at, you know, the success of our classmates and the diversity of everybody, um, what they've done in their lives since we graduated. And I'm honored that you would ask me to do this. And I think, you know, there's also a degree of humility that comes along with this. I mean, given the fact that we've all seen each other, you know, running around and jock straps and crawling through the mud like there's less of the the professional bullshit facade like you know we can <laughs> right. lay it out yeah. and say here's the deal now i'll tell you i mean I, I am seriously broken up about totes and i'm seriously like you know i talked to uh talked to pete got a today and i talked to uh, fitzy just recently too and, and i know they were very close with totes even much closer than i was uh and they're hurting you know we're all beginning to think about life as this temporary thing called life and how it is that we maximize every day. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> Fitzy was, uh, Fitzy was the one that called me and told me about totes. And I was literally driving down the highway on my way home from Thanksgiving weekend, a long weekend. And, um, you know, uh, it was hard to keep it together. Elisa sitting next to me. She's, She's losing it. Um, you know, I'm behind the wheel, driving down, driving down the highway. It was just a, a, a just a shot right to the chest, and and um, so, yeah, I think you know a rough time for everybody. And um, no, I just again, I think it's a great opportunity to kind of just tighten everything up from a, I don't know, personal perspective if you will. So you mentioned Elisa, Elisa or Elisa? Elise. Elise, Elise. Is that, is that your fiance? It is. Yeah. Um, so you, got, you got a wedding coming up. Congratulations. Yeah. That's, that's... yeah. We're doing the, we're doing the COVID wedding, right? So yeah, we've been together for many years. We've been together for 11 years. We've been living together for a while and um, we just had some things um late last year, within the last year, we just had some, you know, significant life events that just, we just decided, you know, hey, let's, let's do this. What, what are we waiting for? And, and, you know, what, why are we waiting? And so, yeah, we just decided to do it, but it, you know, it's a strange world right now, right? And so, so holidays for Christmas. And so we're literally going to get married in our living room. Uh, we found Pastor Jim online and, uh, this week we're going to the we're going to the Moore County, North Carolina courthouse to get our marriage license, and we're gonna we're gonna get married with uh, the daughters and the grand dog in, in our living room in front of the Christmas tree in the fireplace. And then we hope that maybe next summer, if we can get the COVID thing behind us and all that, we'll host a big bash down here in Pinehurst, North Carolina. That's the plan right now. So yeah. Elise and I are going to get, we're going to make it official here in just a couple of weeks. Well, congratulations. That's wonderful. That's, that's great news. And so you, you've been together for 11 years. She has two daughters that will become your daughters, right? These are your, uh, yeah. your, your, your daughters, your adopted or stepdaughters. And so, so, and how old are they? So, yeah. So Lindsay's 28, uh, Natalie's 24. Um, and uh, they're both beautiful young ladies, um, you know, probably that way because I didn't have anything to do with bringing them into the world. But 
they, they, they take after their mother, right? They've got their mother's genes. They're beautiful young ladies, very successful. And um, yeah, and so, uh, you know, Lisa and I have been together a long time. We're already a family, uh, quite frankly. And um, we just decided that uh, since we're all gonna be home for the holidays, we'll, we'll take advantage of that and make it official. Um, Good for you. Congratulations. Yeah. That's, that's, now this is literally like, a, she's a sweetheart of yours going back to the sixth grade, right? That's right. So we so met. Tell, tell me this story. This, <laughs> this, is, this, is great. this is great. So, so you, you've known her basically your entire life, right? Well, so sort of. So yeah, she, she moved to my hometown where I grew up in the sixth grade and we went to sixth, seventh and eighth grade together. Um, now she'll tell you that, um, that I was her grade school crush, but that I was mean to her, you know, in, in, in sixth, seventh and eighth grade and all that. And, you know, it's none of that's true. She's lying through her teeth. No, I, I I'm kidding. No. So we, <laughs> we, we did, we went to school for a few years, then she moved away and, um, and we didn't talk for 27 years. And then a mutual friend of ours, um, I think uh, a, a, a girl that I graduated high school with, known my whole life, reconnected with her on Facebook. And then that friend reconnected, Elise and I. So I ended up sending her an email out of the blue um, after 27 or 28 years and just said, hey, what are you up to? This was, that was in 2009. And we kind of dated long distance for about five years or so. And uh, I was deploying a lot. So, you know, I'd go away and I'd come home and we'd see each other and then I'd go away and I'd come home and we'd see each other. And I was in living here at Fort Bragg and she was living with the girls back in Indiana and Indianapolis. And, um, and then, and then when about five years ago, when the youngest, uh, when Natalie graduated from high school, Elise, we loaded up the loaded up the U-Haul truck and she moved out here. And so we've been living together out here for the last six years. And so she's been kind of holding the fort down while you've been serving our country, moving all around the world doing stuff, huh? You know, she, um, the military was brand new to her, right? So when she and I started talking in 2009 and rekindling, you know, our initially our friendship, um, she didn't know anything about the military. And so she was doing things like, you know, she would follow General Odierno on Facebook because that was a name she recognized from like the news, right? And she's like, well, I'll, I'll follow General Odierno on Facebook because I've heard John talk about him before. And then, you know, just things like that. She had just this very, uh, you know, this innocence about it, right? This, this, um, I don't know. She just didn't know anything about the military, which was a little bit refreshing, quite frankly. So, um, but she has grown, you know, she grew quickly into the, if you will, of being a military spouse. Um, uh, yeah, you know, holding one down of the, the things, one of the things that, you know, is just eye-opening, I suppose, like uh, you sent me the picture, the picture of you, like at your retirement, I look at your, your right, your right arm and there's, there's, 12 deployment stripes there like each one representing six months in a combat zone deployed i mean so you spent over six years in in 
serving our country in, in combat zones, essentially. Yeah, so each one of those overseas service drives represents six months deployed, yeah. Um, and I, you know, Jamie, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed every minute of it, to be honest with you. I was, you know, I, we talked previously. I've, I never been, I've never been married, no kids, no nothing. I've been married to the Army, right, in the true sense. Um, and so, so, yeah, I was spending a lot of time and uh, deployed. And, and to me, it was just kind of second nature, right? Like I would do, go do my thing and come home and, um, and get ready to go do it again. And every time I had to leave, it was just harder and harder on her, um, which is true for all military families, right? Um, it's just, it takes such a toll on families um, especially the longer you're in the game, right? Like it just starts adding up, um, you know, kind of just like those stripes on the sleeve, right? That's just kind of, that's what happens to families, right? Kids um, and spouses and even parents, quite frankly. Um, my parents even, you know, used to get, you know, a little bit, uh, you know, upset, if you will, whenever I told them I had to go back. Yeah, it's fatiguing. Wait, that's it for the families to carry. That, that is, and, and, and your sacrifice and service is something that we are all so grateful for. And we'll, we'll, we'll go back to that, I think, and talk further. But so right now, the here and now, you, you, you retired about a year and a half ago, I think, right at 28 years, right, is your retirement. Mm -hmm. So you, you're, you're kind of on the back end of 18 months of transitioning and tell us what that's been like and, and what you're currently doing for work. I think you just started a new job where you converted from a part-timer to a full-timer. So, so tell me yeah. all about that situation. So I, you know, Jamie, I wasn't real sure what I wanted to do when I grew up and, you know, I literally 28 years in the army and I didn't uh, ever really think about what was going to be next. And, um, I guess there's some, you know, blissful ignorance there to a certain extent. But then, you know, 28 years was mandatory retirement for me for as a lieutenant colonel, and I wasn't going to make 06. So, um, but we knew we wanted to stay in this area. Elise has got a great job, right? So you have these variables, right? You have to take all these variables into account. It's not just, especially for me right? Having been single my whole career, it wasn't just about me anymore. I, I'm not going to just get out of the army, pack up my vehicle and head off down the road. I did so many times, right? And so Elise had a good job and, and we, we wanted to stay in this area. There was, there's, there's a, there's a lot worse places than Pinehurst, North Carolina, right? To live. So um, I started, uh, what I did was I just started doing some defense contracting, right? 1099 contract, independent contractor, um, there's no loss of opportunity. There's no dearth of opportunities, right. Of, for, for something to do stuff like that. Given, given so, your experience and your credentials and where you've been like this, the, the gazillion opportunities for someone like you, right? Sure. There's no, yeah, there's no shortage of opportunities to do it part-time. Right. If you, and I, that is exactly, that, that, that's what I was looking for. Right. I had, um, I, I just, you know, I had to take some time too, right? Like I just had to 
kind of just accept the fact that I was retired. But then once I did, it was like, okay, I want to just catch my breath for a second, right? Like, um, been going pretty hard for a while and I just wanted to take some time. So I wasn't in a hurry to jump into a whole, you know, a second career, if you will, or anything like that. And again, Elise's got a good job and, you know, we're, we're good. And so um, I just started doing some part-time consulting or uh, contract work for, you know, DOD cracking. It was all working out real well. And I was hoping to do a bunch of fly fishing, you know, and a little hunting and, and just kind of, ease my way into it. Um, but I've been doing that now for the last 18 months, like you said. And then, of course, COVID shut things down for everybody, uh, for the most part. It also put a little bit of, uh, you know, the brakes on the whole contracting stuff to a certain extent. And, um, and then uh, Elise was diagnosed with breast cancer um, right last fall, about a year ago. And she started her treatment in January. So I'm part-time consultant. Um, it worked out great because what I, at that time, what happened, Jamie, was I became a full-time caregiver. And I was, I was able to do that because I wasn't working full-time. Um, and then, of course, COVID hit, which um, made being a caregiver a little more difficult because she was, she was in, now at high risk, right, with her compromised immune system and all that. So we had to be super careful um the contracting stuff kind of slowed down or dried up but it was all for the best right so again i became a 24 7 caregiver and mm. i was very fortunate to be able to do that but now 18 months later um she's doing great she's at the coming towards the end of her treatment and prognosis is good and Thank um, yeah so one, one of my one of my former part-time employers you know has offered me a full-time program manager position and um, I'm going to take it and see, see where it takes me. And that's based out of DC, but you'll be able to live in North Carolina and still do the like remote work. Yeah, DC based defense contractor, but working from home here in, in North Carolina, mm -hmm. a little bit you of know, travel involved, but. I'm a little geographically challenged. How far are you from Fort Bragg and Pinehurst? Are you close or are you? Yeah, it's right. I don't know. I commute to work was probably about 35, 40 minutes. Oh, okay. That's easy. So then you could still do work. You could support that whole community there um, from where you live. Perfect. And then. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a good, it's a very good situation for mm -hmm. us right now. Yep. And she's going to Duke, like she's getting the best medical treatment too. She's good. We're, she's going to Duke cancer mm -hmm. center, which is about an hour, hour and 15 minutes away. And you really can't do a whole lot better than that either. So just the whole situation, um, you know, for all those, all things considered, it's a good situation for us right now. That's great. And, you know, as a defense contractor, they probably love you because you are got, you know, all your benefits covered through the, through the, uh, through your retirement. So they don't have to pay for your benefits. <laughs> yeah, they try not to. Right. But uh, also try to hold their feet to the fire a little bit. And um, so if, if you work it right, yeah, you can still get some bennies out of them. There's probably, a, there are a lot of folks like you too that are retired uh, army officers that are just like working in your little, you know, section. I'm sorry, say that again. A little There's bit probably broken. a lot of people, like you probably a lot of retired army officers that are like working as your colleagues in this, in this company, this organization, right? Yeah, there's no, yeah, there's no loss of those guys running around either, right? Like, um, 
some some guys decide, hey, I want to go in a completely different direction, and um, and then other guys just are like, yeah, you know what, I'm going to stick with what I know. Um, yeah, you're talking a lot of people, like you're probably a lot of. Sorry about that. Yeah, no worries. And I, you know, I kicked around a lot of different things, but again, the situation, the situation for us just it it just made sense for us to kind of stay here and and kind of take what was offered. And so it, it, and I'm, I'm loving it, right? Like it's just kind of, I think I told you, I, a, a mandatory retirement for me, had I not been forced to retire, I'd still, it, to be retired, I'd, I'd still be in. I was loving it, man. Which and, is fun, um, which is a funny thing for you to say, because you also said on the pre-call, which we'll get to in your, in your career, there were several points in your career where you were gonzo. You were like out, you're like, that's it, I'm out of here. I'm out of here, right? Oh, yeah. So I finally uh, figured it out, right? Like I finally figured out what I wanted to be doing career-wise in the military and I found it. And so then it was like, okay, just let me go. And, you know, all of a, you know, not all of a sudden, but it, here comes mandatory retirement. It's like, okay, well, uh, I guess I got to go. Um, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be retired if I didn't have to. So the fact that I'm able to still kind of stay in the game a little bit, at least on the, on the, on the fringes, as a contractor, uh, man, it just suits me really well. That's, that's great. That's perfect. That's perfect. Uh, so, um, so that your mom's still living in Ohio, I guess. Yep. And yep. You, have, you have siblings as well, like in that area. Or? Yeah, I do. I've got three brothers. Um, they're all kind of back in the Midwest. Two of them are in Ohio. One's up in Wisconsin. And, you know, where I grew up in Van Wert, Ohio, um, is kind of the central location. And so, yeah, that's still home to me. It will always be home to me, but, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm up that way. And Elise's family was, is originally from Indiana. She's got family all over Indiana. So when we go up that way, it's just, we're able to cover the whole family. So what was that like growing up? You're kind of in like Northeastern Ohio, I think. Like Northwest. kind of Northwestern Ohio you were. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I, I grew up in a small town. Um, I wasn't really a farm kid, but it's also, you know, I'm not a city kid either. So it was kind of, kind of one of those things. It's uh, typical. To me, it was typical, you know, just a kind of a small town Midwestern kid. Um, and, uh, you know, I was just, I, I grew up there and I was getting ready to graduate from high school. And I just, you know, I was trying to figure out how, how could I kind of, you know, serve my country and go to college and, and so, all this. I didn't, I didn't know a lot about the, you, the academies. Where, where do you fall in the, in the, in the grouping of your siblings? Are you the oldest, youngest, your middle? Like where? I'm second. I'm second oldest. Okay. So somebody had already gone off and graduated from high school when you were graduating basically, right? Yep. Yep. And, and so, um, you know, I think I, I just, I, I didn't know hardly anything about the academies. Um, I didn't know anybody that had gone to any of the academies. You know, I decided I wanted to, I remember one day my mom asked me, she goes, you know what it is you wanna do when you, you know, after high school? And I said, well, I think I wanna, I wanna major in aerospace engineering. I wanna be a fighter pilot, Good you know, point. Big, big, big lofty goals. And so, you know, she said to me, well, you know, the Air Force Academy is probably the best place to do that. I was like, you know, what is this Air Force Academy you speak of kind of stuff, right? Like I didn't know, 
anything about the academies. I didn't know anybody that went to an academy. So I obviously started to do my research. Um, and so, but, you, you know, going through the whole process ended up being that West Point was the best option for me. And so, so that's what I, I decided to pursue, pursue that option. In the meantime, uh, my, my, I've got a younger brother who's two years younger than me. Um, well, I, I was, I was at the Academy when he graduated two years later, but, um, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of military influence in my, my family either. I've got a ton of, my dad was a vet and I got a ton of uncles and everything and that were, that were vets, but there wasn't just this, you know, long illustrious line of military, um, in my family. And so the military was a bit foreign, um, but anyway, so I just started digging into the whole academy thing and, and going through that whole process. I just kind of decided what, and that just started the, that started that process for me. And, and you, you have a story about how hard it was to get in, right? I mean, so it was not exactly an easy, easy go of it from uh, Western Ohio. Where there's probably a lot of competition to get in from, from that area, right? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know if it was the competition or just my lack of qualification, but um, <laughs> yeah, so, so I went, just like everybody, right, I went through the process, got nominated, and, um, you know, I got at one point, I hadn't, I had not received an appointment yet, but I had an opportunity to go out there and spend a few days at the academy, right, like I, I got to go live in the barracks with a you know, with a cadet and go to class with him and all that other stuff that everybody got to do when they were, when they were um, getting ready to go there. And, you know, I just, that, that just did it for me. It sold, it sealed the deal that I, I was like, this is what I want to do. And then I didn't get in. Um, you know, I was told, Hey, look, you're qualified, but we just don't have room for you. So, you know, sorry. And I said, okay. And um, so I thought, all right, well, good thing. I have a backup plan. So I, I went to uh after high school, I went to a small school in Ohio, a school called Baldwin Wallace College in Berea, Ohio, which is outside of Cleveland. And they had recruited me to play football. It was a small division three school. And uh, so I thought, you know, um, I guess that's, that's where I'm going to go. I had several options to stay, stay back home. Um, that's the one I picked. And shortly after, shortly after I got there, um, well, I had a, I had a Malo, right? We talked about this. I had a really, really good Malo. Um, and he said, Hey, uh, I know you're going to go to school, but you should apply for this civilian prep scholarship. If you get it, then what you do is you go to school, get, you can go to any school of your choice, but as long as you maintain a B grade point average, you'll automatically get into the Academy next year. I said, oh, okay, cool. So I applied for it and didn't get that either. Like, all right, screw you guys. I'm, I'm going to go to, I'm just going to go to college and go, you know, to this small school and play football and, you know, have a good time. So I did. And then um, partway through the year, the same liaison officer encouraged me to reapply to West Point. Said, you're going to have to go through the whole process again, but if you really want to go, you should do it. So I did. And I went through that whole process again, had to get nominated by a congressman again. I had to apply for an appointment. I had to go take the. By the way, all while you're a freshman in college and yep. playing football for that college. So you, like, you're not exactly have like a lot of time on your hands to do 
all this other <laughs> stuff on top of it, right? But you wanted to go that badly that you- I wanted to go that badly. I wanted to go that badly. And this was all discovery learning, right? Like I didn't know much about the academies. I didn't know that you could reapply after you don't get in the first time. I didn't know about these civilian prep scholarships. I didn't know any of that, right? Like, like I just didn't know, it was, it was just coming at me. And so I, yeah, I really want to go. So I went through the whole process again and I got denied again. And then, the, you know, my the liaison officer says, hey, fill out this, uh, apply for a civilian prep scholarship again. And I'm like, man, you're starting to sound like a broken record. I've already tried all this stuff. It's not, you know, working out in my favor and like just keep trying, you know? And so I did the civilian prep scholarship the second time. So I was in my first year of college. I, you know, I had done well. Um, I played football and track and had good grades and, um, I applied for that civilian prep scholarship and I got it. And so I was getting ready to finish up my first year of school. I was going to go home for the summer, then go back to college for a second year. And if I maintained a, a B grade point average, I would get in like the third year of college. I'd be starting at West Point. And um, next thing I'm getting ready for finals. And the next thing I know, my dad calls me and says, hey, the academy just called. They have a slot for you if you want it but you gotta, you gotta be there in like three weeks. So you need to get your ass home and, and get ready to go. And so, yeah, I blew off my last final and um, hightailed it back to back home. And three weeks later, I was reporting for our day. Wow. That without is, having to go through a second year of college. That is quite a story. And that also speaks to the importance and the significance of the Melo program, because had it not been for that Melo officer, whoever that was, XYZ, captains, whatever his name was, yeah. you would not have been, you would have probably not reapplied. You would have not gone in. You would not serve 28 years in a tier one unit serving at the, the you know, the tip of the tip of uh, the spear, you know, for, for six years deployed. You know I mean? Like our nation is grateful to whoever that Melo officer was that kept after you to keep it going. You know, and I told you, I, I'm kind of ashamed I can't remember that guy's name. He was a reserve lieutenant colonel who wasn't even an academy grad. He, he, he wasn't an academy grad. He, I don't know, you know, how he got to be that in that position. But, you know, it was, man, he was just helping me. He was pulling out all the stops and trying to help me any way he could, whether it was, you know, getting me to apply to for a civilian scholarship or getting me to apply to the academy a second time, you know, applying for that civilian prep scholarship again after I got denied the second time. I mean, this guy would not quit, nor would he let me quit, really. And uh, if it weren't for him, if he is a Melo, there's, you know, I would have just probably given up because I just didn't know. I didn't know what my options were. This is a story that should get replayed someplace else, like with an AOG or something, because the Melo program almost imploded a few years ago. I mean, there yeah, were me that. nine Melos across the entire United States. And, and uh, you know, for a variety of reasons, it just it lost funding, it lost support. And I think the other thing, too, is that a lot of people were getting, you know, mobilized time and time again, like, we can't, we can't do this. Uh, so, but it really speaks to the importance of that outreach, you know, to get to, to get to these kids that are on the fringes, you know, maybe they don't come from a military family. They don't know the, 
the the whole sort of ins and outs and how to get through these hoops. And so that's just an amazing story. And what an amazing story of perseverance too for you, you know, to have gone through that. And then, you know, you got three weeks, you got to drop everything, move from like, you know, partying in your dorm, you know, being, being you know, like a big man on campus to being, you know, young uh, new cadet uh, Gerald, right? You know, yeah, Jamie, but I'll tell you, I, I, I never looked back. And I, I remember being at school, both, both plebe year and really the first two years, right? Because after that, we're, we're kind of committed. Um, but I just remember either, either classmates or upperclassmen even finding out that I had gone to college for a year and now I'm at West Point. And they're like, why did you do that, right? Or, you know, as a plebe, just, you know, having a, having a, having a classmate bitching about everything, right? And how miserable they are and, you know, talking about how they're, you know, talking from high school and how much fun they're having in college. And I remember just used, I just used to sometimes look at these guys and say, hey, look, man, I, I've been there, okay? Um, and I'd rather be here. Now that's my choice. If you'd rather be there, quit and go do that. There's, it's fun, trust me. There's all kinds of goodness in that. <laughs> you know, I enjoyed the heck out of uh, my, my one year of, uh, you know, civilian college that I had before I went to West Point, I wouldn't trade it for anything, but, um, but I just used to, you know, I remember I just used to talk to people and say, Hey, check it out, man. I've been there. I did it. It was fun. Um, but I'd rather be here. And so too, when you finally do get out of joint and you're allowed to just have that like three days of freedom and you go to some college, you live like an entire month's worth of party yeah. in that three week, in that three day time frame, you know? So oh, yeah, you up for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I get it. I get, I get the desire, but um, I had a taste of it and um, I still wanted, I still would have rather, you know, I still wanted to be at West Point rather than back in Cleveland, Ohio. Mm -hmm. So when you show up at Beast Company E2, who are some of the notables? Like what, what, what do you remember of the, like the, the, the big stories from like either Beast or academic year or like what, 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 brings that true to you as your your favorite memories from being there uh you know i think uh i remember just uh being in my room right after you know i reported in in my roommate my roommate for beast was rob meldrum and um yeah i just remember uh rob showing up you know and our eyes are both we have our eyes are this big right it's our day and we're just like what have we gotten ourselves into and i just just i just one of my one of my fondest memories, I guess, or one of my most vivid memories is, is meeting Rob Meldrum, my beast roommate. Um, you know, the, when, the, when the cadre delivered him to what was gonna be our beast barracks uh, room um, for the summer. Um, that was, a, that was a, a plebe year, a good plebe year memory. Um, you know, man, there's just so many of them. Uh, heck, I, you know, I, I don't know. I just, uh, where, where's Rob from? I'm sorry. Rob's from Pennsylvania. From Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, Ohio. If you're these, these two are probably basically the same, like two, two, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. If you know Rob Meldrum, you know, we are not the same. Right. So I was probably, I don't know, five, 10, five, 11, you know, 160 pounds. Rob was the like two time Pennsylvania state heavyweight wrestling champion. 
um, and he was there to wrestle for army, right? Like, so yeah, we were, you know, I probably looked like his little brother. Um, uh, so yeah, no, 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 no. We were, although I was from Ohio and he was from Pennsylvania, there was no, there, there was not a lot of similarities, uh, between the two of us. Um, George, just, was, just, I'm trying to Johnny think of, Cook, was Johnny Cook in your company too? John Cook? No, John Cook was not, uh, Brett Peckis was, um, I'm, I'm trying to think. So, you know, I'm just, just my roommates, like I, and I still keep in touch with a handful of people from my company, uh, Brett Peckis, I keep in touch with, um, Tim Burnham, Joe Ayers. Um, I told, I, I think I told you, I, I saw Jose Aguilar, uh, out at Fort Carson at John Cook's retirement ceremony in August. Um, uh, he's still in, you said, right? He's still in. Yeah. I think Jose's getting ready to retire. I think this year, um, yeah, he's 06. Um, yeah, and he, I think he had just gotten to Fort Carson not too long ago, but was that was going to be it for him. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think he's getting ready to retire this year. Um, I don't know. We had a good, uh, I really enjoyed our company. E2 was a good company. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any of the, uh, my, any other classmates that I keep, Fitzy. Um, Brian Fitzgerald uh, moved into E2. Um, Rick Yoder. Rick, Rick was here. At my uh, Rick came down here last summer for my retirement ceremony. He's living in DC. I don't know if you remember Yod. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I thought we had a really good company and I, and you know, as, as much as I can say it, I, you know, I enjoyed I don't know if I can say I enjoyed, uh, you know, Beast, but I enjoyed being around all those folks. Um, I thought we had a good company and a good class within our company. Class of 91 and E2 was, was solid. Mm -hmm. Where, where's, where's the barracks for E2? Where, where do you get, is that like somewhere in the middle? Like first? Yeah, we were Bradley barracks, okay. central area. Okay. Yeah. Brad, yeah. So I think, um, I might have been in Bradley my first year for one semester, I think. Is that the one that faces like Bartlett Hall? No. Uh, well, it's like it's an L-shaped. It has a short wing and a long wing uh, right yeah. across central area from Central Guardroom. I think it was, uh, that might have been Pershing or something, Pershing Barracks or something. I, I, I don't remember. So, um, and you majored in electric, uh, aerospace engineering. You kind of uh, a a uh, you know like a, a light achiever there, I guess, huh? Like aerospace. <laughs> like Man, I you know I I I told you I had to work my ass off. Um, I don't know that that was a smart decision. You know, maybe it was because I made it, but um, yeah. So I got to as soon as that man, I knew. I wanted to major in aerospace engineering and I wanted to branch aviation. Um, and I was lucky to, you know, uh, I was lucky enough to one, make it through the aero program and two, uh, branch, branch aviation. So you're mostly mathematically inclined, right? Like that was your, that was your focus was engineering and yeah. you, how, and you mentioned too, I think you said you took some of the basic courses, the basic calculus courses in your civilian school experience right but none of those none of those credits translated so you have to retake those classes again 
Right. So I, yeah, nothing transfers, right. You don't, you don't, yeah, nothing transfers credit hour wise. So, um, I just, I think I remember taking some placement tests, right? Like we're all in an auditorium or something and we took, we took some, uh, we took some advanced placement. I don't know, but I ended up being in, uh, I ended up eventually working my way up into, um, it was like, I think I was eventually made it into section one for math and, um, but, but, and I think I told you that, that, you know, year of college only gets you so far, right? Like it, it, uh, anywhere, but especially at the academy. So, you know, in college I took, you know, like psych 101 and, you know, English 101 and, you know, some calculus, and then you get to West Point, and it's like, okay, well, it doesn't even really compare. That 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 extra year I had to warm up didn't really get me very far. Um, it didn't get me very far. You know what I think? You know what I think a year of college maybe did for me the most, Jamie, was, you know, a year of maturity. Um, you know, a year of maturity, a year of being away from home, um, you know, far away from home. Um, and, uh, you know, an opportunity to figure out that I'd rather be at West Point than be back in college. I think that that had that probably had more to do with with my success than any of the academic stuff that I I was able to do for that year before I went. I see there's a question here in our chat here from uh, Rick Yoder. He wants to know if uh, if after after. West Point's aerospace engineering program was the Army intellectually easy. <laughs> uh, I would say no. Uh, you know what's funny is that uh, I I um, took a whole nother. You, you and I've talked, and and I'm sure we're going to get into it about my career path in the Army. But um, you know I've got. I ended up getting a master's degree while I was stationed at Fort Knox, got a master's degree, a master's of engineering and engineering management from the University of Louisville. And the, here's the thing, man, I've got two engineering degrees. I've never been an engineer. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, first, so what's that tell you, <laughs> um, you know, banging my head against the wall, you know, both at school and then in, in a master's program and never uh, I never was an engineer. Um, and then eventually you know, especially after 9-11, right? And you start, it, it's a different world and a different army and, a, and the, the missions are different and everything. And, you know, things start taking a different, you, you have a different perspective. And so um, being focused on, uh, being focused on more of the, what we call it? Uh, uh, what we call it? Uh, HPA, house plants, animals, humanities, and MS something. Math, science, engineering. Math, science, engineering. MSD or you were HPA? It was HPA. Yeah. Poli sci when you don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But I'll tell you, you know, so intellectually, that stuff became more important to me. Um, particularly in the second half of my career. Right. We're going to yeah. definitely talk about it. I want to put a pin in that. Yeah. Though. I want to hear. I definitely want to contrast like the, um, you know, being a part of the special operations community and like the high speed, low drag. 
I want to hear how that how that uh, how that contrasts with the army where you're painting rocks, you know, in front of the first sergeant's office and like you know the, yeah. brute, the brute force, just like you know putting pebbles into into coffee cans, kind of kind of work. But um, before we get there, though, so you walked 50 hours, or you had to sit 150 hours for a slug. What what year was that that that, that happened? Uh, cow, cow year, I think. Um, who were your, who were your accomplices on this, on this little shindig that you guys, you guys blew posts and got busted coming back, right? That's right. Um, I was with Peckis, Brett Peckis. Um, oh man. Um, Mike Burke. Um, Tim Burnham, maybe. I think he was he I think he he was actually the one that caused the whole thing. Um, no man, so there was a up in up north in Poughkeepsie, right? Is that right? There yeah. was this bar. It what was called bar? Gullies. It was called the Chance. The Chance, okay. I think it was in Poughkeepsie, and um, there was a band playing up there that Mike Burke, who was a Jersey kid, right? He's writing great white, <laughs> great white at the chance. <laughs> um, so Mike's like, hey, let's, we, 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 we want to go listen. Let's go hear this band, right? And so I think we borrowed a firsty car and we blew posts and we went up there and our plans to be back before lights out. And we made it. The problem was one of the firsties from our company saw us up there. And so he dimed us out. And yeah, we all got first class boards. It was the only one I got. Um, That's kind of a dick move. I mean, let's think about it. So were you guys were cows or your firsties? I'm sorry? Were you cows or yearlings? We were, you you we borrowed one of his classmates, one of his company mates cars to go there, right? He sees you there and he dimes you out. That's kind of a dick move, right? It's a hugely dick move. We, we were, um, yeah, we were cows. Yep, and we borrowed a firsty car, got up there, ran into somebody that uh, ran into a firsty, another firsty in our company who, yeah. Who went to go see the same band? Say again? Who went to go see the same band? Who was at the same bar? I think, I, yeah, you know what? We were like, I think we ran into these guys when we were in the parking lot, right? Like we parked the car, we're getting out of the car and we're walking to the bar and we run in, we run into them, yeah. I don't know if he was in the same bar, but yeah, you know, so, so that's what happened, man. First class board. And I was core squad athlete at the time. So I, I didn't walk hours. I had to sit every Sunday. I had to sit like all day. Right. So you had to get in your, your uniform, go down and get inspected. Then you go back to your room and you, you sit. So it was three hours. You sat three hours for every one hour that you would walk. And so I sat, I, man, I, it took all semester. I sat 150 hours and it took like all semester. Um, yeah, because yeah. you only get eight hours for a weekend, eight hours for a Sunday, right? So That's right. 150 divided by eight is a lot of numbers. That's like, <laughs> you're the, you're, yeah. you're, you're so, the math guy. That's 20 weeks basically <laughs> or 18 weeks. That's That's crazy. It was painful, man. It was painful. I would have rather just walked the 50 hours and just get it over with and then done with it. But yeah, so that I, I avoided other than that, I avoided trouble. 
Yeah. So only, that was your only hours. You, you never walked in hours. Only you, you only sat hours, huh? That's right. Uh, That's right. So, so you decided to branch aviation. That was your, your lifelong goal, be an aviator, aerospace engineering. Did you have any, so you, you got selected for aviation, passed your physical, did all that stuff. What was that experience like that, you know, like flight school and, and being a young junior officer? And by the way, what kind of uh, aircraft were you, uh, were you assigned to? Yeah, so I went, when, when we went to flight school, you, you, uh, you did the first half or two thirds of flight school flying UA-1 Hueys, right? You went through initial entry rotary wing training and instrument training in Hueys, and then you could branch into one of, you could either stay in Hueys or you could go into Blackhawks, OH-58s, H-1 Cobras, or you could stay in Hueys. And um, I was in Hueys and I graduated. So we finished flight school. First of all, flight school was kind of like the you know, like we said, uh, it was almost like a year of college we never had, right? So we're down, we're everybody the, everybody from the class, the class at Branched Aviation, we're all down at Fort Rucker. We're only an hour from Panama City Beach, Florida. Um, were you so, part of that crew that had the place that you had like a place that was rented with Tommy Teak and Russ and those guys? So they had one, right? Those guys had one. And then, yeah, I lived in a house with, there were five of us. It was me, Brian Kiwak, Carlos Canino, Rick Crawford, and Jeff Jack, who was kind of a class of 90, class of 91 guy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so we had a house, five guys in a house, much like much like Rich Ryan and Tommy McTeague and those guys. Um, and yeah, we, we threw some pretty epic parties. Um, uh, we weren't the only ones, of course, but uh, we, certainly, we certainly had our share. We hosted our share of parties. Um, yeah, you know, and so that, that was, uh, that was, uh, and I, you know what I, Jamie, I was able to make some friends with classmates that I hadn't really known that well at school. Right. So being at Fort Rucker and going through, you know, that hardship, right. Going through flight school group, right. Of classmates. You just got to know, I got to know a bunch of guys that I probably, you know, didn't know that well from from four years of being at school together. And so that, that, that was a blast. And then I went to Ranger school after flight school. And um, I came back, I came back to Fort Rucker from Ranger school and, and um, you know, the company commander there was kind of like, Hey, uh, and I was supposed to go to Egypt and fly Hueys. And he was like, Hey man, we need, we need somebody to fly. You know, we, we, we've got a Cobra course slot for somebody. Um, you know, do you, you want to fly Cobras? And I said, sure, I'll fly Cobras. And he says, all right, well, you're going to have to go to Korea for your first assignment. And I said, I don't care. So I, after range school, I went back to Fort Rucker and went through the Cobra course and got uh, qualified in AH-1 Cobras and then went to my, went to my first assignment um, in Korea um, after so, that. So I, I, I was almost a year behind. Yeah, my, you're like got to be a first lieutenant by then, right? When you first get to your first assignment, you're like a first lieutenant. I got promoted to first lieutenant within probably six months of getting to my first assignment. Yep. Yep. Right. Oh yeah. And so, Korea, where were you? Uh, was that like was it Camp Greaves? Is that where you were with the with the unit? Or I was at. Uh, well, I started off at, in Weichangbu at Camp LaGuardia. There was a first 
we called it half attack. One, two aviation was a, a Cobra battalion, an attack battalion in Weijongbu, right down the road from Camp Red Cloud. Mm-hmm. And um, I was over there for about a year and a half and, and I was wanting to fly Apaches, right? So the army was getting rid of AH-1s and a lot of my buddies were getting Apache transitions and, and all that. And, you know, Branch was telling me, ah, we want you to come back to the States and go out to um, Fort Bliss, Texas and to this Cobra unit out there. And I was like, what? You know, the army's getting rid of Cobras. Everybody else is getting Apache transitions. You know what? So I ended up cutting a deal and they said, well, if you extend in Korea for six months or four months, then we'll be able to get you lined up with an Apache transition. And so I had to start, this kind of goes into my whole career path change, right? Later down the road, that was just kind of the, I started getting a bad taste, right? In my, I started getting a bad taste in my mouth and having to deal with Branch about, you know, what what is best for you and your career, right? Um, but you know what, I'm, I'm like, okay, well, what can I do to, you know, what can I do to make this work? Well, hey, you know, if you, if you extend in Korea for, you know, four months to six months, we'll, we'll bring you back and we'll get you an Apache transition. And I just, you know, I'm starting, anyway, so that's what I did. And I, I ended up coming home and going to Fort Riley, Kansas, getting an Apache transition, finishing up that course just to come back to at Fort Rucker or just come back to Fort Riley, the unit's deactivating. And so it was just, you know, I was just kind of churning. At that point, I'm back in the States and I'm like- I want to say, this is a tough time for people to have to put up with that bullshit. Like this, like what you're describing here was similar to my own experience with units being deactivated and like branch not knowing what to do or whatnot. So this is a point in time, like I left- you almost left, right? This is a point, this is like one of your first times where you were like, maybe I'm gonna get out, right? Yeah, I wasn't too, I was still clinging on to hope, right? That I could, that I could make, make it work. And I think I was still under my obligation. So I'm like, but you know, I'm just, I'm starting to have bad interactions with aviation branch, mm-hmm. right? Like over the phone and, and just, I'm just, I'm having, everything is a, everything is a heavy lift, right? Because I get back to Riley and they're like, well, the, we're going to deactivate. And then Branch is like, well, we, we don't know what to do with you, you know, and all this other stuff. And I, I just, but that was one of the first times I, I really kind of started my, my career into my own hands. I, and I said, well, what, Hey, why don't you send me to the armor advanced course? Right. Like I, I had, commanders and mentors that were telling me, look, you do not want to go back to Fort Rucker to the advanced course. You know, if you want to be an attack helicopter pilot, you want to go to the armor or the infantry course. Um, And so I was able to start doing things like that, right? So I was able to get to Fort Knox um, and go to the armor advanced course and the cavalry leaders course. And um, once again, I had an opportunity to start building some friendships with some classmates who I either didn't know that well at school and didn't know from OBC because most of these guys were armor officers, right? And I knew some of them, but I didn't know all of them. And so that was another opportunity though, to really build some great friendships with some guys that I probably wouldn't otherwise have, you know, ever run into again. Um, 
So is that where you ended up rooming with uh, Johnny Cook and Randy Christ and, and that whole and, and Jim? Well, no, no, no. That was my that that was a, <laughs> that was an assignment or two later. Okay. Um, yeah, left left Knox went to went to Fort Bragg. Did it did uh, did like three years at Fort Bragg, and that's when again, uh, you know, DA calls me up. Now I don't know if you remember back when we were lieutenants, but we had to pick like a functional area. It was like an alternate, a secondary MOS. And so I get a call from DA that says, hey, you're gonna go to, you're gonna be an ORSA, Operations Research Systems Analyst. I'm like, okay, I don't even know what that means, but um, how can I not do that, right? And they're like, hey, sorry, you're gonna go do this. And they said, okay, you're gonna go to Fort Knox, Kentucky and be a marketing research analyst at the third recruiting brigade. And I'm like, okay, I don't even know what that means, right? Like what? We have those like what is that i don't even know what that is but anyway i remember calling up my good buddy john cook complaining to him that i was you know i called to say hey gosh i'm, I'm going back to fort knox of all places right hardin county kentucky it's a dry county you know it's just it was just like i'm i'm just man and he goes well hey it's not that bad he goes i just i just got orders for fort knox randall chris just got orders from fort for fort knox um, another classmate, Jim Rockwell was getting out of the army and was going to, going to get, he took a job with GE in Louisville. You know, John's like, Hey man, let's just all live together down up in Louisville. Right. Like, yeah, it'll be an hour commute to, to work every day, but who cares? It'll just be right. So that's where we had an epic time, an epic time. We had, yeah, we had this big old house, this big old bachelor pad in, in the heart of Louisville. And just, yeah, that was that was quite honestly, maybe one of the shittiest jobs that I had, um, or at least I thought so at the time, but the most fun I had, right? Because it was a nine to five job, Monday through Friday. And I was living with, you know, three solid dudes, good friends. And, and just, we were just, you know, we're single captains, yeah, I mean, it was you had money. Awesome. You had a cool place. You're just burning the city down every weekend, right? And you had and you had Randy Christ of all people to just bring in all the women, right? Oh, just bird dogging. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. We hosted a couple of uh, so the Kentucky Derby. I think two or three years. I think I was there. I was there. Uh, I was living with those guys for uh, for two Kentucky Derby parties. Um, and then Army Louisville football game at, at, at UofL, um, just epic long weekends that we hosted, right? Like you would, I'd walk downstairs and there would just be bodies everywhere, right? Like a dude grenade had just gone off. There was just guys finding any flat surface they could find to, to pass out on. It, it was just, it was just awesome, a uh, couple of years living with those guys and, and yeah, yeah, burning it down in, in Louisville. I'm not, even sure, I'm not even sure we can go back to Louisville to some of those places. <laughs> yeah, it must have been a good time. I, I was in Louisville actually for a Kentucky Derby uh, right after Ranger School. I graduated from Ranger School and then I was, I went down there, Jim Montgomery and a bunch of other armor guys were getting ready to go to Ranger School. So I went down there for the weekend 
uh, to uh, the Kentucky Derby. That was a, that was a great time. That was a great great time. Yeah, we 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 had we had we hosted a couple of really great parties um, weekend week weekend long parties down there. That that was absolutely one of the best times of of my you know in 28 years one of my best from a from like a social right like i i now have relationships with with you know i was already friends with john cook and randall christ and and, and jim rockwell and um but but that was just one of those that was a time in my life where those friendships now are just i mean we're all tight even tighter now right like 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 and it's because i think of that shared experience also Brent Crabtree's asking. If I, that I was, thought about getting. Out of uh, What's that? Brent Crabtree's asking if that was when uh, Kiwak got married. Brian Kiwak was was that the. Yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, it was. Yep. Uh, yep. So, so you were saying that was a point you were really seriously considering getting out of the army at that point, even though you had this great social scene, the job wasn't so great. It was like maybe this is the time to get out, right? Yeah, you know, um, it's there's there's really not a lot going on in the world, um, and uh, I was finishing up a master's degree at the University of Louisville. I was getting a couple of job offers, and I was like, you know what, maybe this is it, right? Like, you know, I, I was a little put off by my branch for making me go there to do that job. That's just just the all of it, right? Like, I was just, you know, your typical just disgruntled employee, I suppose. Um, some of it on me, some of it on, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, and so I was, I was seriously considering it and then 9-11 happened. Right. And so you're driving to work, listening to Howard Stern, yeah. you said, right. Howard Stern show. I had that, I had that hour long commute from Louisville down to Fort Knox and every morning, you know, I'd get in the car bright and early and I, with a cup of coffee and I'd turn on Howard Stern and just, you know, drone all my way on the, all the way down. And I'm getting, I'm, you know, I don't know, halfway down the halfway down to Fort Knox and yeah, you know, uh, we all remember where we were and how we heard it. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm listening to Howard Stern and I'm like in disbelief and, you know, I'm driving faster and faster. I want to get to work so I can find out what's really going on and, you know, walk, just like everybody, walk into work and, you know, and just disbelief, right? Everybody's huddled around the one television in the, the unit ops office, uh, you know, watching the towers come down. Crazy time. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm a, uh, I've always been a huge Howard Stern fan. So when you wrote that in the pre-call pre notes, it just took me back to that time because I was listening a lot at that time as well. I think that, you know, having grown up in the tri-state area, New York area, like, you know, Howard Stern was always, Howard Stern was big when I was, you know, in high school. I was listening to Howard Stern going all the way back to then. And I think in a lot of ways, just his perspectives on things has, has influenced me. But, uh, you know, what I remember about that time, well, first of all, like that guy, Crazy Cabby, Remember that guy, yeah. Crazy Cabby? Yeah. He was the first one to say, this is Bin Laden. I remember him, see, he, was, he was using the term Bin Laden because he was, he was in the 82nd, Crazy Cabby. Um, but you know what else happened at that time was, um, do you remember Hank the Angry Drunken Dwarf? He had died. He died the week before 9-11. So that whole week, they were like, 
thinking about Hank, the angry drunken dwarf and how he died, the whole thing. And then boom, 9-11 happened. And I, I just remember that whole thing was happening at the same time. Also, Pamela Anderson's sex tape was happening at that time too, I think. So it, it, <laughs> it's a time for us Howard Stern fans, you know, at that time. It was remarkable time, man. And I just, you know, I remember I was, again, I would, I would go to work and then I would go straight from work back home to Louisville and go on campus. We lived about two miles from campus. And so I, all my classes for my master's program were at night. And so I would be in my uniform and I'd go straight from work to campus so I could get to class on time. And I just remember after that happened, I would walk into class and, you know, people would just look at me funny. And, you know, I had one professor ask me, she's like, are like, what, what's your deal? Are you, are you going to be here tomorrow? Right? Like, are you going to, you know, and, and, and it was a little bit ridiculous to us, right? To have to field a question like that. But I think it was pretty representative of people's, like, I don't know, a little bit of their fear, a little bit of their not really knowing what's going to happen next kind of a thing, you know? So, yeah, but I was, I, I was, that, that was going on, right? Like, so I was going to my classes and, and, and I would just get people asking me all kinds of strange questions about what's going to happen next. And are you going to have to leave? And are you going to be able to finish the program here? And all, all, all kinds of questions like that. Um, it was just, what? yeah, it was just. It, it was, it was. I'm sorry, Jamie. It was, it was an interesting time. It was like, in terms of like where we were in life at that time. A lot of us were in graduate school. A lot of us were like at that cusp of the, you know, 10 years in the army. So a lot of us were getting out at that time. I, I know I've talked to quite a few people who had just gotten out, 9-11 kicked off. They were in some graduate school program and they were like, had this, this feeling of not missing out, but just like feeling like, like this uncertainty or this uneasiness of having left the military, but yet this was happening, you know, like there was all that was, was going on. And so for you, I mean, that really like that, that, that emphasized your commitment to stay in the military, at least for the time being, right? That was like, there's no way you're getting out at that point, right? That's right. I, you know, at that point, I'm just like, okay, well, I'm going to stick around for a little while anyway, just to kind of see what happens, right? And so then as soon as I finished my master's program, I, I you know, I asked Branch to get me out of there and get me back to an operational flying assignment. But the best they could do for me in anticipation of going to Fort Leavenworth for the command general staff college, which was only about a year away was another one year assignment somewhere. And they tried to send me back to Korea. And I was like, look, I've already been to Korea. I'm not going back. And that's nowhere near where we all need to be right now. Right? Like right. I no, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to go do that. And so I ended up, they ended up sending me to Saudi Arabia. Um, the war in Afghanistan was already started. The war in Iraq was ramping up. It was getting ready to kick off. And so I got, I got an opportunity to go over to Saudi for a year and be an advisor to the Saudi aviation Corps. And so, so I took that assignment, um, which was another kind of eye-opening, uh, opportunity for me where I got to see a side of the military other than the big conventional, you know, um, the big conventional army that, that I was used to. Um, it, it was a whole nother perspective on, 
other things and opportunities that, that, that were out there, right? And, that, and look, that marketing research job at, at the third recruiting brigade, um, quite frankly, wasn't pr a pretty awesome job, right? I was using another, I was using the other side of my brain that I hadn't used in a while. Um, it was um, different. Um, I had a lot of autonomy. Um, you know, I got to make my own decisions and, and solve my own problems. And, and, and it kind of, again, just gave me different perspective. That was a side of the army I had, I didn't even know ever existed. And there were aspects about the job that were different, again, from just being in the big army, conventional army and a line company, right? Like it was just different. And it was honestly a little refreshing. Same thing with the job in Saudi as an advisor. Um, I got promoted to major, so now I'm a field grade officer. Uh, people treat you differently, right? Now I'm over in Saudi Arabia, terrassing around um, as a singleton, getting to getting to advise the getting getting to advise the Saudis, and everybody's you know everybody's assholes have slammed shut because the war's get, getting ready to you know kick off, and the Saudis are scared, and there was there were actually there was actually a a terrorist attack in Riyadh uh, on a Western compound while I was there. So, it, you know, it wasn't it wasn't up in Iraq uh, on the invasion, but it was as close as I could get at the time, um, and it just kind of renewed my life a little. Um, and then I got selected to go to CGSC with a bunch of a bunch of you know our year group, a bunch of our classmates, and and all that. And so I came home from that and went to went to the staff college with, you know, which was another almost year of just getting to take a little bit of a break and reconnect with old friends, make new friends, um, that kind of thing. Yeah. Amusa George told me that was like being back at West Point. Yeah. You know, like all these people you hadn't seen for so long, they're all, they're all back in the same, same geographic area with you. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was like that. It's all, you know, a lot of, a lot of academics. So you, again, you're using that, that other side of your brain. Um, you know, some guys had already been deployed, so they were back and just wanting to take a break, um, you know, physically and mentally. Um, some of us hadn't, hadn't quite get, been, you know, into the combat zones yet. So uh, some of us were anticipating that, but that's when I, you know, I, I had an opportunity to go into the special operations community and it, it was something that I had an incident there. I had another run in with aviation branch while I was there. Right. It had to do with flight pay and all this stuff. And just, you know, uh, sat down face to face with the aviation branch chief, you know, and he told me one thing and then ended up doing another thing. And I was just like, man, I just, I felt kind of pigeonholed, right? And so um, this this special mission unit was came to came to the staff college and was recruiting. And so I said, you know what? I'm just going to go. I'm just going to go talk to these guys and see see what happens, see what my options are. So and, just hold on one second, because this to me is so interesting. Because I never quite understood this, but now I think I understand it more. Which is that. Because you know you've got this special operator community and you're growing people that are the these you know the operators you know the, the real sort of like um, you know in, in that whole community, but you still need staff officers and intel people and all those kind of things. So they so they come they come to the 
advanced court or to the uh, to the war college and CGSC recruiting people to come in and join that community basically that so you got an interview with 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 that community and they said we want to talk to you about a kind of a change in your career moving into this into this other part of the army right yeah so yeah um i talked to them i talked to them about you know i talked i i talked to them about filling an aviation position right like a uh an aviation liaison officer kind of position, right? And in, in the air shop. And um, they said, well, yeah, you know, we've got one position, but um, we're not real, you know, we're not sure if it's going to be open. Like, let, you know, we'll, we'll get back to you. Don't call us, we'll call you. And so then I, you know, they told me, yeah, look, hey, it's already filled and we're, you know, hey, sorry, we don't, we don't have a position for you. I said, okay, that's cool. I, whatever. And I'm, I'm working my aviation assignments over here on the side, right? And then, um, they asked me if I would be interested in a branch and material staff officer position. And I thought to myself, you know what, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna go sit on a division or core staff somewhere and be a staff weenie, you know, why not go, you know, why not go into go do something cool, right? Like go to a go to a go to a special ops unit and and, and do it there. Um, and so anyway, I went through I went through that process and um, it was a very unique experience, right? Um, and so, and they, and they hired me and I didn't really know a whole lot about what I was getting into because they didn't share a lot of it with me. Um, but I went there and the deal was, Hey, look, we're going to bring you in. You're going to be a staff guy for, you're going to be a staff officer for a couple of years, and then you'll go back to your basic branch. And I said, okay, that's cool. Um, and like I said, to, it was a best personally the best career move that I could have made, right? Like it just, um, it was just a good fit for me. Um, and after my first two years, they they asked me if I wanted to stay. And, and at that point, and it was so refreshing, right? Like it was so different than talking to Branch, you know? They, they, they said to me, hey, you know, your two years is up. Do you want to stay? And I said, well, yeah, I want to stay, but I, you know, I'm, I think I'm cut out for a little more than just this staff weenie stuff. I want to do something different. And they're like, yeah, we agree. What do you want to do? Well, I don't know. What, what can I do? What, what do you want to do? They're like, come up with three or four jobs and the, in the, in the commander will pick one for you. And so I literally got to, in a sense, pick my job, you know, um, and so I did that. And then two years later, it happens again, right? Like, and Jamie, I, I told you, two years turned into 15 years. Um, you know, it's the same years. unit living at Fort Bragg, right? So all that, all that, all that turmoil. And we talked earlier tonight about the stress on families and stuff, right? I understand that one of the things about the military that can just stress, put a lot of stress on your on the family unit is all the moving and the changing schools and the spouse either not being able to find a job or or um or having to switch jobs all the time and all that other stuff right there was and even though I was a single guy look I enjoyed not having to move either so it, for me it was more about the assignment than the stability but at the same time you know it, it was just different it was a different experience than having to deal with with a branch that I was convinced didn't really care about me, right? It was always needs of the army when, and I get that. I'm not, I, I'm not saying that uh, 
that my personal desire should outweigh the needs of the army, but let's at least have a discussion, right? Like, um, and I, I just didn't feel like I was getting that. And then when I had that opportunity to jump the fence and, and go do something different and then make a whole second half of a career out of it, I just, I jumped all over it, right? And I knew that I would be sacrificing some of those decisions I made along the way. I knew that I was going to be sacrificing, sacrificing, you know, promotion, promotion of 06 and stuff like that. But it, at that point, I was like, you know, once I made 05, I'm like, okay, I can retire. I can retire as 05 and, and, and feel good about that. Right. Like, right. And it's really just two more years that you, you know, I mean, uh, like before an MRD anyway, you know, at, at, as an 06. So, you know, you lost two years potentially of what would have, mm -hmm. but you got these 15 years of just high speed, low drag, like kick ass stuff that, you know, your grandchildren will brag. Well, hey, yeah. I wasn't an operator, right? Like I wasn't a door kicker. I, I went from being a staff guy and then working my way. I eventually became an in intelligence officer um, and, and ended up getting to command a, a support troop and all that. So in that, in that regard, it was very fulfilling. Um, it was very fulfilling for me personally. Uh, for me, it was a natural kind of evolution of my career. I felt like I was as I went from job to job, I felt like I was moving up, even though I wasn't moving up in rank, right? Like I was moving up in, in, in the types of missions I got to do and the, and the responsibilities that I had and that kind of thing. To me, the things that really make a job worthwhile, right? Regardless of the rank and the, in the, you know, in the pay, um, quite honestly. So um, I just felt like, it was, it was a good move for me, right? There was no way I was going to stay. There's no way I would have stayed in the army for 28 years. If I was, I stayed on the conventional mm -hmm. either aviation or ORSA path, right? Like I just wasn't going to be able to handle that. I, I may have, I may have done 20 years so that I could retire, but I, I wouldn't have enjoyed it like I did my last 15 years in the army. And I, you know, I told you if I wouldn't have been able to, if I wouldn't have been forced to retire, I wouldn't have, I'd still, I'd still be there getting close to retire again. Right. 30 years. So, so I, I just, I, it was about taking control of my own destiny, right? Like this all the time. So there, there were, you know, once I kind of started blazing my own trail, I would get other officers come up to me and ask me, hey, how, how do I do that? How do I do what you did? And, and I would be like, hey, look, you just have to take matters into your own hands, right? Like, um, you know, figure out what you want to do and try to do it. And if they, and, and if, and if, if you can't do exactly what you want to do, but there's another opportunity over here, go do that. That doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean that you're going to burn any bridges over here or, or you know, it's, it's your career path doesn't have to be a straight line, right? Like you can wicker this thing. You can, you can figure it out as you go. And that's, that's what I did. I, you know, I got tired, Jamie, of calling up branch aviation branch and saying, Hey, you know what? I've been at this duty station for two years. What, what are my opportunities? And they immediately would start back planning from when my battalion command selection board was going to meet. And they would back plan all the different gates I was going to have to go through 
to then figure out what my next assignment was going to be. And after, you know, I don't know, 10 years of that crap, I was just like, hey, wait a minute. Who said I wanted to be a battalion commander? Mm -hmm. Why are you defining success for me as battalion command? You know, I, I turned down, uh, I, well, I turned down, I didn't compete for battalion command. Once I got out to, to my organization where I was and I, I, I knew I had the opportunity to kind of determine my own path, I, I didn't even compete for battalion command, even though I had been selected below the zone to 05. Mm -hmm. um, to the point where, you know, at one point, Branch called my adjutant and said, hey, this, why is he not competing? because he's most likely gonna get selected for a battalion if he would just compete. And I, you know, again, it goes back to, I, because I don't want to, right? Like you keep you love what you're doing. for everybody what success is. Mm -hmm. I told my, um, I told my unit commander, my unit commander pulled me in the office one day and he said, hey, are you leaving this summer? Like what, what are you gonna go do? Because I was gonna, I, I had told you in the pre-call, pre I, I was gonna go become an Intel officer and I, he was, and I told him that, and he goes, well, what are you, why, why are you going to do that? And I said, look, sir, I do not want to command an aviation battalion because I want to stay in the community and I want to, I want to stay relevant to the community. And he was like, okay, well, what are you going to do? And I told him, well, I'm going to go be an Intel officer. He said, well, why don't you stay here and do that? And I said, well, because, you know, I didn't know that was an option, but if you're telling me that's an option, then that's what I'll, I, I would, you know, I'd appreciate the opportunity to stay here and do that. And so, I just was paving my own, carving my own path, if you will, and um, determining my own, defining success on my terms, right? And not some branch manager who's sitting at Department of the Army, knowing that his next job's secure, right? Um, and just trying to fill slots in these other jobs over here. I, I, I wasn't, I just stopped doing that. I stopped letting somebody else determine what was best for me. And it made all, all the difference in the world to me, right? I, I, I was able to spend over half my 28 years exactly where I wanted to spend it. That's, uh, that's amazing. That's amazing. You know, I want to ask you a question. If you, if you can't answer this question, please let me know you can't answer the question, right? So I, 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 I like we, we've, you know, you, you've, you've worked in this very highly specialized area. Um, and in intelligence, but, you know, I'm just thinking back to, you know, when we finally, when we finally got Bin Laden, um, was there a point where you just, is there a, a, a sigh of relief that's breathed throughout the community? Like, oh, we, we at least have finally got to this point. Like, like, what was that like? I mean, cause I like, you know, I, I know that clearly there's like, everybody's kind of like focused on that for years and years and years. Like what, what was that like for you to, in that situation? I, I don't know where you were, obviously, I don't want, you know, but this, what was that like? You know, I, it was a little bit, I think for a lot of folks, anticlimactic because we were focused on other things in other areas. Um, you know, other, other things in other parts of the world. Um, it was a, that's one of those um, that's one of those things that you, you like to hang your hat on that, right? Like, um, with, without a doubt, it was a good thing, right? Like everybody, I don't know if there was really relief, um, 
but there was it was a it was a phenomenal accomplishment um but at the same time like nobody stopped to take a breath or um you know nobody let up on the accelerator um going after the you know other going after the other things that they were going after and other places that we were going after them if, if that makes any sense mm -hmm. um there was a a belief that you know that, that while while everybody wanted while everybody absolutely wanted to get him it wasn't necessarily going to change anything across the breadth of the battlefield right so right. um while it was certainly certainly an accomplishment it really at the end of the day didn't grant anybody any reprieve from the the other missions they were trying to accomplish or you know didn't allow us to take a break if you will mm -hmm. um and i don't know if that answers your question really um but i you know i well, no i mean i just i i think of uh I mean, at that point i was just a full a full line spectator you know just somebody looking at it on the news you know with uh at the time and was well, uh, i mean you know we we were across the entire special operations community that was certainly the number one um right the number one target the number one um that everybody wanted to get but we were so focused on other things in other areas again across the breadth of the battlefield that okay yeah it happened it's great um but we got it doesn't change anything for anybody really right like again there was no that didn't relieve any pressure off of anybody anywhere. Hmm. There's not a point where people stop and say, hey, let's just think about this moment. Thank God we got this. Let's back to work. But it was not, not even like that. It was just like, hey, just another day, another day in the army, huh? It just another day. And and there were so many other uh opportunities like that also, right? Because every time it, it, you know, uh they, they just, they keep replacing themselves, right? They keep regenerating. Um, yeah, and so as soon as, soon as you get rid of one, there's another one. Um, and, the, and the focus just changes, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, th th look, there was elation of course, because of the magnitude of, um, you know, that it was Bin Laden, but operationally, man, it really just didn't impact. It didn't have that significant of an impact, to be honest with you. You know, so six years of being deployed, you probably end up in some of the same areas a couple different times, right? Like, like you've, you've been to, you've, you've been like, are there areas of Iraq or Afghanistan that you would recognize if you went back to them, you think? Like, like is there like- a <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah, there is. Yeah. Well, I feel like I should start paying taxes over there in Iraq, I think, sometimes. I mean, you know, yeah, absolutely. I wonder about that. I was thinking about this, too, having this conversation with you today. Now, I had the opportunity to go back for the 60th anniversary of D-Day uh, to France. I was in Normandy at, in uh, little towns, St. Mary Glace, you know, where, they, where the 101st jumped in. And there's this GI that was there. I mean, a veteran, you know, he's like in his 80s, right? Dancing with his wife, you know, in the town square where he jumped in. Yeah. And it was an amazing, I mean, it was such, I get chills thinking about this because 
chances that, that this guy's still around are probably pretty slim, but he was dancing in this, in this town square where he jumped in with the 101st. You know, like here, here it was, you know, 60 years later and the world's changed and they saved the world. And I, I just don't think there's ever going to be a situation like that for you in Afghanistan or, or in Iraq. Like, 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 I don't, it's just not, maybe there is, but is there a scenario ever where we are at a, able to go back like that in, in a peaceful world there? Hey. Is that ever going to happen, do you think? Wow, that's a great question. And I think it won't be anytime soon. You know, like it's not, I don't know that it'll be in our lifetimes, maybe. There, there, are, there are areas, let, let me take that back. There are areas that we, we can go back to um, or areas we can, yeah, there, you know, there are areas we can go back to that, you know, I don't know if you're going to be dancing in the square, but um, there are some areas that you can go back to and be, I would say, relatively safe. But that's not really what you're asking, I don't think. Right. Like, here's an interesting I think I, I and stop me. I want to make sure I'm, I'm I've got I'm going to understand the perspective, your perspective in the question. Uh, at one point, I was over in Afghanistan and. I've got to hitch a ride to get to a different part of Afghanistan, right? So I go down to the airfield and the only thing going the direction that I need to go is a German transport, right? So I was flying up into Northern Afghanistan, which is where uh, some of the NATO forces and, and non-NATO forces kind of had this, you know, multinational sector, right? And one of those was the Germans. And so I'm on this German transport and we're flying along and there's this young German NCO sitting next to me who spoke some fairly good English and we're having a conversation. And I asked him, you know, what, what was his job? Where, you know, where, where's he, where's he, where's he working? Like, where's he headed? What's his job? Anyway, the guy's a mortar platoon, uh, a mortar team leader, a German mortar team leader, brother. He was so proud to tell me that just a couple weeks prior his mortar, he got to fire mortar rounds at the Taliban, right? In this brief skirmish that they had. And he said, I called home and told my grandpa uh, what happened back in Germany. And he was, he started crying um, because that is to his knowledge, the first time the Germans had fired live mortars at the enemy since World War II, right? And so I found that ironic that, you know, because who were they shooting them at in World War II, right? Like, it, 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 here, here, here's this kid, you know, telling me how emotional his grandfather got over the fact that last time he fired mortars, it was at probably at the U.S., at U.S. soldiers. And, and there we are having this conversation. Uh, so unless I'm not understanding your question, will, will we ever be, you know, will, will there ever be, you know, I don't know. ISIS or, or Taliban soldiers having that same conversation with the U.S. soldiers sometime? I doubt it, right? I doubt it. Um, are there places in Iraq and Afghanistan that we could probably go to um, and, be, and be relatively safe or, or maybe even be welcomed by the local population? Yeah, there, there are places like that. But as far as I think what you're talking about, right, with this 
dancing in the square or the people that maybe used to be our enemies now are our allies or our friends. I, I don't imagine that we're ever going to see something like that um, with the situations we have right now. I just don't. Well, it's a complex mm -hmm. world. It's a complex world. And I, I am so grateful that you and other members of the class of 91 and other West Pointers are, are out there, have been out there, you know, with our national interests and navigating this complexity and doing, doing the best thing in 28 years service to the country, you know, and 15 of which in a, in a tier one unit, you know, 12, uh, six years of deployments overseas. I mean, what a, what a, you have certainly shouldered more than your fair share of the task. And there's, there's no question that, you know, you know, among our classmates, you know, you and the others that are continuing to serve and have served so long, we're so, we, we owe such a debt of gratitude to you. So thank you for what you've done. Uh, thank you for your service. Thank you for setting the example. I, I wonder if you have some final parting thoughts for us. Uh, you know, we've been talking for quite some time and we're getting to the end of our podcast, but uh, to leave us with some, some thoughts that you have, um, having served and, and being a member of our class. Well, first of all, Jamie, thanks for that. That's kind for you to say that. You know, I just feel like, um, you know, I'm not the only one, right? Like there's still guys out there that are serving. Um, and, and will continue to serve. And then there are certainly people that will continue to serve out of uniform. I hope to do the same thing. And so, you know, it takes all kinds. Um, and and you, you don't necessarily have to do it in uniform. Um, I think I wish that, and I know that, that you and our other classmates understand that. I wish more people in the United States understood that, you know, there are ways to serve um, in or out of uniform. And I think we need more of that. But uh, thank you for those comments. And I, it has been my honor to serve for 28 years. Um, I'm proud to be in the class of 91 and a West Point graduate. And I'm proud that I was able to serve 28 years. I'm proud that I did all that time overseas. I'm, I'm proud to have spent, you know, so much time in a, in a, just a, in a, in a tier one unit with, with uh, an important mission. And I'm, you know, I wish, I wish I could continue to do it. Um, as far as parting shots, you know, I was I was on a Zoom call earlier today with um, with some of our other classmates, and I, you know, I, I just would tell you that you know, you and I spoke um, earlier today and in, in, in earlier in the week, and I was telling you about the fact I just lost my dad, and and um, you know, a few days later, I'm talking to Totes about um, the loss of my dad and the in the the grieving process. Totes had lost his younger brother, Dave. A few years ago, and he struggled with that loss for a while. And he shared with me some of the, some of the some of his grieving process, which actually helped me. And so, when I was signing off on the Zoom call earlier today, you know, I think what I would tell people is this: you know, we we um, we're at that stage in our life now where if we haven't already lost our parents, we're probably going to start losing them, right? Uh, I just lost one of mine. We're also at that stage in our lives where we're not. Um, you know, we're, we're starting down the hill and, um, you know, we're not spring chickens anymore, right? Um, we've lost a handful of classmates for various reasons. Uh, you know, handful of years ago, I was at 
I was at Tommy McTeague. Uh, I, saw, I went and saw Tommy McTeague just a few days before he passed, went and saw him in the hospital and then joined a bunch of our friends at uh, Gaelic Park and, and um, you know, to celebrate his life and all that. And, and then we have this, uh, you know, just this tragedy with, with totes. And so, you know, maybe, maybe it's a perfect opportunity for us to um, tighten things up as we say, right? Like, um, share our thoughts with each other, um, you know, um, hug your loved ones a little tighter, um, kind of, kind of put things into perspective. Uh, we, we talked earlier, you asked me earlier about what I'm, what my second career is going to be. And I, you know, I've told Elise and I've told buddies of mine, I hope I don't have a second career, right? Like I want my second career to be fly fishing, um, so that I can maybe take take advantage of the opportunity to joy, enjoy my family, enjoy my friends and, and uh, you know, the finer things in life or at least the things that make me happy. So um, the service doesn't have to stop, but um, you know, maybe it's a great opportunity. Maybe, maybe something like totes is passing is a, a wake up call or an opportunity for us to just put things into perspective and find an opportunity to find those other things in our lives that have been neglected, right? Or have taken a back seat and tighten those up a little bit. And I hope that makes sense. And I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to share my story and, and offer my feelings on that here at the very end. Thank you very much, John. We're going to, we're going to end. If I can manage to do this, I want to share some words from my fall with totes. So we're gonna just let this run out and I'm gonna play this here, which was just some highlights from this talk with him. So uh, just bear with me, let me get the uh, thing teed up here. Are you able to see that I think, right? Yep. Right, then I'm just gonna hit down to Eisenhower Hall. The first captain, the King of Beasts, is up on stage and he asks the following groups of people to stand up. All those of you that were valedictorian in your high school class, I don't know, like a hundred something people stood up. And all those of you that were captain of our RC athletic team in high school, please stand up. And you know, four or five hundred more people stood up. And then all those of you that were the president of your senior body, you know, your class in high school, stand up. Well, another 145 people stand up. And I, I figured at that point, the only question left was Anthony DeToto, would you like to stand <laughs> up? Right. And we all felt like that at some point in our cadet career, you made that point. We go through this very uniform experience where they want to make sure that we all embrace the suck, embrace the suck. And I like, that didn't necessarily bother me. And they played a little song by a guy named Lee Greenwood. If I remember right, called him proud, I'm proud to be an American. And I saw everybody got up on his feet and were screaming. And I thought, man, these are my people. This is where I want to be. And, and really what it comes down to, and you know, 20, 30 years later is when we're in the military and we're getting ready to get out, most of us didn't know exactly what we wanted to do next, but we were all almost to a person pretty sure that it wasn't going to be, as important as what we just did. Final words from Totes. I'm going to miss that guy. Um, God bless Anthony DeToto. Let's have his family in our thoughts and prayers. Uh, we'll be learning more. I think the, the funeral on Wednesday may be uh, broadcast. So if we have the ability to broadcast that, we'll let, let people know. And there will be some type of a Zoom call or something to, to commemorate him and, and remember him. 
And I'm going to have this shot of uh, Jack Daniels in his honor tonight. So uh, thank you, everybody. Duty shall be done. Um, totes, um, well done. Be thou at peace. Thanks for joining us tonight, everybody. Thank <laughs> you.